22 months. The Marquis de Lafayette had been gone for nearly two years. He had gone to America fully idealistic, and while he still believed in the American cause, he had his eyes open to the full reality of the situation. At first, many in the Continental Army had thought of him as a pretty rich boy coming to play soldier, though he soon earned their respect and even a symbolic but affectionate title of Our Marquis. But at home, he had displeased the king through his disobedience and had left his wife heartbroken despite urging her to support the American causes so many wives of his colleagues had. Adrian tried, but she was suffering from loneliness and the death of her first child, Henriette, at the age of two. After his imprisonment, in name only, a few days at his beautiful home, Lafayette became the talk of the town. His father-in-law helped Lafayette craft an apology letter to the king. His house arrest ended shortly thereafter. He wrote, I had left as a rebel, a fugitive, and returned in triumph as an idol. Though one could accuse him of embellishment or arrogance, he had in fact caught more attention. He was known to be at the side of the most powerful man in the Continental Army. Even Marie Antoinette asked to see him, commenting on how far he had come from being the awkward boy who had once stepped on her foot while dancing. He had enchanted all whose acquaintance he had made. And Lafayette knew now that he was in a position to play a more advanced game of chess to help his friends. He had an audience of an affection of the two most powerful men in the world, and now all he had to do was convince Louis that it would be in his best interest and in the best interest of all of France to help the Americans. It would result in the birth of the United States and all end with Louis and Marie's heads on the floor. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. The Marquis de Lafayette. Episode 2 There was a part of Lafayette that had slowly started to acknowledge the disconnect of his wealth when he saw the state of the Continental Army, or how the average American colonial lived. Unless they were wealthy enough to afford slaves, they usually worked the land or trades. Returning to the halls of Versailles and its opulence was earth-shattering. Reverse culture shock, if you will. French society had become enthralled with Lafayette, and the young man was noticed everywhere he went, but he wasn't the only famous one in Paris courting the American cause. At French court, pleading for support were John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. Now, Franklin was a particular favorite of the French, not for his intelligence, but rather his eccentricities. He was a funny, charming man, and he was aware of the joking love he received, but he knew to amuse the French court would be to win them over, so he played his part well. Adams was more serious, and a more different group of men working for the American cause could not have been created. But the Continental Army was losing strength, and because France's hopes were to have her as an equally strong ally, it appeared that France would send its money to other causes. The three were too far away to help Washington as his soldiers suffered. Instead, they decided to attack a little closer to their home base. Across Britain and Ireland, there were many rich towns and seaports, and the French agreed to supply ships and men for these raids. 
Franklin then recruited John Paul Jones, a coastal raider who, if not successful, might have been called a pirate rather than a captain. It was a genius idea, but France became a bit timid. Lafayette wrote to Washington that the French, it seemed, were losing interest, and he was demanding answers. He was asked to take control of some of the king's ships in southwestern France. He was being exiled once more, it seemed, to a military operation that would keep him out of the way. Lafayette apologized to Jones that he would not be able to do what he did best, raid countries, and followed orders to guard France from its enemies down in the south. He didn't know. He didn't know it was all a diversion. Lafayette had only been sent away to make the British feel more relaxed to let their guard down because the French were not just going to go into coastal regions. They were planning a full-scale invasion. In addition to convincing the Spanish Armada to go to war with the British, the French were very much still in the American Revolution. I can never really tell in my reading whether Lafayette was thrilled with the surprise that France was still wholeheartedly in support of the American Revolution or if he was annoyed that he had been a decoy. He wanted to fight and begged to return to Washington, whose army continued to struggle through the harsh winter and starvation. He wrote letter after letter, waiting on someone to okay his return to America, The French court said nothing. Congress said nothing. And George Washington was in between a rock and a hard place. They exchanged affectionate words, and Lafayette and Washington both spoke out about how much infighting was happening in America as states fought one another. And that should bring most Americans some cold comfort that this has always been an issue. Lafayette implored Washington to visit him in France, even jokingly saying his wife was in love with him, but shortly thereafter, he was called back to Versailles. It was there he learned he was to be given 30,000 troops while he waited on the arrival of the Spanish Armada. They were to invade Britain. And it was a lot of waiting. Lafayette and Adrian spent evenings with Benjamin Franklin and Once the Armada arrived, the crews tried to figure out a plan to outsmart the British Navy. And then there was an outbreak of smallpox. They waited for an opportunity that never came, and then as storms rolled in, Lafayette had to accept failure. They never set a foot in Britain. Though his friends tried to console Lafayette, he felt grief and embarrassment. He had let the Continental Army down. He wrote a letter to Washington telling him he wanted to be in his company once more, but one piece of news did reach Lafayette that made him smile. John Paul Jones, in a commandeered ship, had bested the British ship, the Serapis. With two other American ships by his side, Jones famously boarded the ship after his own ship caught fire, sinking during the firefight. You've read this in your grade school textbooks. Jones standing up to the powerful British Navy, who were the entire time trying to get him to surrender, where he very famously responded, or it was very likely propaganda, I have not yet begun to fight. It was one small success in an entirely botched operation. 
Washington and Lafayette continued correspondence. Now, biographers have noted the affection in Washington's tone toward Lafayette. After receiving a letter on Christmas Eve from Washington, Lafayette was able to write back and tell Washington of the birth of his son and that he and Adrian had given him his name, George Washington Lafayette. Lafayette, though happily invested in his growing family and his growing skills as a diplomat, longed to return to the fight. Some doubted his ability to lead after his failure with the French and Spanish Armada in the Channel. But he very wisely pointed out how much weaker the British would be if they had to focus their entire military might in North America. And so Lafayette and some of his closest colleagues worked to organize 6,000 troops and to send over 15,000 muskets to the Continental Army. Lafayette even emptied his own bank account to help. Though it appeared Lafayette would be given control of the operation, the French and advisors wisely agreed that someone with more experience should lead. And control was given to Jean-Baptiste Donation de Vimeur, the Comte de Rochambeau. In addition to guns, France also ordered Lafayette to present Washington with several ships and navy men. Just as David Diggs sings in Hamilton in America Musical, he went back to France for more funds and came back with more guns and ships. And so the balance shifts. When I tried to write this podcast episode the first time to convey just how terrible the first part of 1780 was for the Continental Army, I could only come up with one sentence. It sucked. Aside from the infighting, the Continental Army had been whipped by freezing winters. Those who survived the cold were nearly nude in their uniforms that were rotting away. It was Lafayette's return with a significant amount of supplies and weaponry that was the first good news that anyone had in ages. Pulling into Boston Harbor, people were thrilled to see the ship the Hermione. Church bells rang and people ran to catch a glimpse of the hero of both worlds. In a letter to Adrian, whose passionate love Lafayette had begun to reciprocate after the birth of their son, writing of his adoration of her, but also stating with faux modesty how moved and stunned he was at the joy of the Bostonians. But it was obvious he enjoyed the attention. On May 10th, Alexander Hamilton escorted Lafayette to Morristown, where, for the first time in a while, Washington laid eyes on Lafayette. The embrace was emotional and there was a moment of joy, but... Then it was quickly back to reality with a meeting in which Washington revealed the tragic truth about the dire nature of the American situation. Even with the help of the French, it was likely they would lose. From the money Lafayette had taken out of his own accounts, Washington did establish an intelligence network behind British lines. Washington planned to use Lafayette's popularity to encourage Congress to send more money. Now Lafayette gave an impassioned speech, but... Congress kept its purse strings shut. Later in 1780 came more bloody and brutal defeats. Cornwallis defeated Horatio Gates in South Carolina. When many retreated, Lafayette's old friend, the Baron de Cobb, refused to halt. They were quickly overtaken and were slaughtered. The British found de Cobb, and he was stabbed to death by bayonets. Colonel Bannister Tarleton, who had ordered the massacre of the Americans who kept fighting then turned around and ordered the deaths of those who had surrendered. It was as if a cloud of 
pessimism reigned over the land. The British were going to show the Americans what were to continue to happen if they resisted. Washington was growing more and more tired, but it was Alexander Hamilton and Lafayette who wrote individual letters to everyone they could think of in Congress. It worked slightly, but not in the abundance one would hope. And then the French fleet that arrived in 1780 carried far less than the amount of supplies and munitions that had been agreed upon. This led to verbal blows between Rochambeau and Lafayette, stopped only by George Washington's mediation. They refused to speak to one another for some time until Washington made Lafayette apologize. The verbal blows had to be put away for now. There was a mission at hand, but the two did remain friendly. The importance of Lafayette's contribution to the creation of Washington's spy ring cannot be understated, and it's likely Lafayette didn't even know how much it would benefit the Continental Army, especially as operatives on the ground like the Sons of Liberty and the Culper Ring, groups that both deserve their own God's favorite series, began to discover traitors in the ranks. But the biggest find, of course, was the discovery of the actions of Benedict Arnold. Objectively, Arnold had some valid reasons to be upset with Washington. He was injured multiple times, most seriously in Quebec, and walked with a limp for the rest of his days. He had not received demands for compensation, and he was also widely associated with loyalists to the crown. He had accepted 6,315 pounds to commit treason by giving positions of the Continental Army to British spies. Lafayette was alongside Arnold in Washington at a breakfast in West Point when Arnold received a letter saying that a spy had been caught in the nearby woods. No one noticed that Arnold's demeanor changed, but he knew he was done for. The spy was Major John Andre, Arnold's accomplice. Leaving his wife behind, Arnold grabbed some supplies and fled. It was quickly figured out that Andre had been working with Arnold, and it was Alexander Hamilton who gave chase, but Arnold made it aboard an English vessel and escaped. He sent a letter back to Washington, not revealing his motives, but admitting to the treason. Everyone was stunned. No one had suspected a man who had given up so much for the cause to be a spy. He had given proof of talent and patriotism, wrote a befuddled Lafayette. And though Andre admitted the plan to Washington and asked for an officer's execution of firing squad, he was given the traitor's death of hanging. Lafayette and others held respect for Andre and honored his heroism. He had just simply been fighting for his side, but had been a gentleman in all encounters, not lying to the Continental Army. Lafayette wrote to Adrian and said he had foolishly liked Andre and carried guilt over voting to send him to the gallows. Nathaniel Green took Arnold's post at West Point, and Washington made a point to move forward. But he did make a point to tell Lafayette. If he ever caught Benedict Arnold, he was to hang him. Morale was hitting an all-time low as Lafayette continued to ask for money and more Tories were discovered in his company. In April of 1781, Lafayette and a thousand men set off to Richmond, Virginia, as British troops under the command of General Phillips and Benedict Arnold took Petersburg. In Virginia, Lafayette finally met Thomas Jefferson. 
Jefferson, who spoke with so much passion of freedom and independence and bravery, never actually participated in battle. When asked for more troops, Jefferson told Lafayette that it was out of his hands. Lafayette had finally grown to realize the dark side of bureaucracy that came with this new nation. Less government control meant more talking than doing. But thankfully, Richmond harbored plenty of munition warehouses of which the British were unaware. So, as they marched into Richmond, they were met with heavy fire. It wasn't that there were more Continental troops than British, they were just much louder. Reinforcements arrived and General Phillips was killed, leaving control of the army to Benedict Arnold. When Arnold proposed a prisoner exchange to Lafayette, Lafayette clapped back. If anyone else had asked, I might have considered it. The two did eventually work something out. Cornwallis, who Lafayette did have a legitimate concern about, moved in to quash the Continental Army. The two moved around each other in a dance, and by July of 1871, Lafayette decided to attack the rear guard. But Cornwallis had been leaking bad information to Lafayette, and the attack at Green Spring ended not well. They were outnumbered, and Lafayette sent letters to Washington describing the difficulties as the British began to circle them. Washington would write carefully coded letters, knowing if intercepted they could mean life or death, but he told Lafayette to stay put, and that he had been talking to Rochambeau about New York. This was only partially true. Washington and Rochambeau did talk about attacking New York, but even in conversations with Lafayette prior to his departure to Virginia, they knew attacking New York was a lost cause. Lafayette was slightly confused, but chose to trust Washington. He sat tight until movement was necessary to avoid capture by several British high-ranking officials who wanted nothing more than to capture him. Cornwallis specifically lusted after capturing Lafayette. Lafayette ordered an evacuation of Richmond and took his soldiers into the forest. He had no way to communicate, but he had to roam the hills much as he had as a child looking for that storied wolf that was destroying livestock. This time, though, the wolf was the British army, and he was not so much the hunter as he was the prey. Meanwhile, the British also took it upon themselves to ransack Thomas Jefferson's home at Monticello. But those whose homes were ransacked by the British, including those who were enslaved, began joining up with Lafayette, and the numbers of soldiers began to multiply. Meanwhile, Washington and Rochambeau had tricked the British into thinking they were headed to fight in New York, allowing important papers to fall into enemy hands. The intel led to a request of more British troops that would head from Yorktown to New York, and the plan would be to attack them there as more French troops arrived. 2,500 Americans, around 4,000 French soldiers began digging trenches to face 8,000 British soldiers. If this plan worked, they were going to win the war. They began a cannon assault that pounded the British. And then came the brilliant coup de grace. Lafayette and Alexander Hamilton would sneak quietly on British redoubts or fortifications. On October 14th, as the lines continued firing on the British, this guerrilla-style approach with bayonets happened. Hamilton and Lafayette's commands knocked out the British fortifications in less than 10 minutes. The British remained trapped in the bay and tried to escape, but a severe storm 
proved an impediment for Cornwallis. On October 19th, a British drummer boy waved a white handkerchief in the air, and suddenly it was silent. The British had fallen. Cornwallis surrendered. Well, he sent General Charles O'Hara to avoid the humiliation of handing his sword to Washington. The band struck up playing Yankee Doodle at Lafayette's command as the British soldiers retreated, and those who chose to surrender and stay handed over their weapons. On October 20th, Lafayette wrote to the French Prime Minister to alert them of the victory at Yorktown. There were to be more skirmishes, and Lafayette knew more was coming, but the British had been bested. He aptly ended his letter with the following. The play is over, Monsieur le Comte. The fifth act has just come to an end. But this will not be the end of Lafayette's story. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we look at some of the people who were God's favorites or at least thought they were. Sources for today's episode include Lafayette by Harlow Giles Unger Hero of Two Worlds by Mike Duncan Ron Chernow's famous biography of Hamilton and MountVernon.org. I'd really like to thank everyone who donates to God's Favorites Patreon, which you can find a link to on my TikTok at Melissa Fair Lady. We do all sorts of fun stuff on TikTok, so come hang out with us over there or on the God's Favorite Facebook group. Money from Patreon is used to buy books, research materials, and pay for podcast distribution costs. We'll hope to see you in two weeks, where things start going very wrong for Louis and Marie, as well as Lafayette. See you next time, friends. Thank you.